pain is some serious business. It ain't everyone who knows what to do about it. Now I hear there's a podcast just about this. It doesn't talk of pain alone, but other interesting things distracting the mind from it. So I suggest you tune in to Outsmart the Pain and listen to what Karsten has to say about it. Get ahead. Get it done. Listen to the podcast and maybe change your life or someone else's. Hello. When I started this podcast, my thoughts were that I would have solo episodes, that is, me talking about different subjects every episode, somewhat related to persistent pain, or maybe more on a funny side about working as a doctor. Time would tell how popular it would be, and I would change my subjects depending on the feedback. Now then, not to make it too boring listening to me, I would have some episodes with a guest. And I needed to do it in English because I use a program which translates the recordings to text, which makes it possible for me to edit without much time and effort. To be honest, this program now handles Swedish as well, but I will not change the language now. And funny enough, 20% of my listeners come from non-Swedish speaking countries. But... My initial guests were so interesting and the feedback was great, so I kind of continued to ask more guests, and most of them agreed. So now I have a pod where most episodes are talks with guests, and somewhere in between I throw in a solo episode. When I think I have something to say, maybe. So today is one of these rare moments. Please cherish it carefully. Just kidding. And maybe you are not even interested in listening to my story, but you might. First of all, how in the world did I end up becoming a doctor? I will tell you a secret. I cheated my way into medical school. Well, not really, because it was totally legal. But I had been an exchange student in Lubbock, Texas, at the Estacado High School. My experience during that year could be an episode of its own, but I guess not in Outsmart the Pain. But it was a great year. My exchange student organization, Youth for Understanding, which I really can recommend, wanted most students to be juniors so we could take American history classes. In some funny way, I still became a senior, that is, the last year in high school, and I still could take American history. When I graduated, someone in Lubbock wanted to graduate with real grades, and not only for show, his or her school approved this, and so all high schools agreed that all exchange students could get their grades as well. So I had my Swedish grades translated and then got a real high school diploma from the US. After finishing my last year in Swedish high school, when I got back, I applied for medical school, but my grades were not good enough. So I got into computer science instead. But during my first semester, someone said that since I had a high school diploma, I could apply in a special quota, that is, in the same group as everyone else with a foreign exam. So I did, and I was accepted to medical school. 
So, lucky me, I guess. Or maybe computer science lost someone it should have had instead. The next mark... Mm, no, don't think so. So, me becoming doctor was kind of a coincidence, one could say. After medical school, you should decide what kind of doctor you should become. I was certain I should become an ophthalmo... An ophthalmo... Uh, oh, okay. A doctor who knows everything about the eye. An eye doctor. I had been promised a position as a junior doctor at a clinic, so it was just standard procedure I would go and have an interview with a senior doctor. These were the days before HR rules told us everything needs to be officially announced uh, before you could hire someone. At the interview, I learned that the interviewer was another doctor and not the one supposed to be there because he was sick. At the beginning of the interview, this person said, I am very sorry, but there is no position to apply for. I was stunned, but uh, I was promised. Yes, I am really sorry, but things have changed. Panic. I had no job. I had not applied for an internship anywhere. So the last day one could apply, I did. At one place, Örnsköldsviks Sjukhus Hospital, and I called the staff assistant saying, you might as well accept me because I have only applied at your hospital and I will continue until I get it. Of course it did not work, more than her instantly knowing who this big mouth was. I was put on fifth reserve, but to my luck, five people said no, and I got the position, internship, AT Läkare. Two days after getting this, my original contact at the eye clinic I told you about called me and asked me when I could begin. Again, I was stunned. I said, a colleague of yours told me there was no position. I found out that my so-called interviewer had a research student. He really wanted to get the job, so he had told everyone there was no position to apply for. And then the person he wanted said no. Well, since I had my internship, I had to decline for this uh, eye doctor job, and I got a little thorn in my side regarding research. How did that world work if you behaved like that? And in hindsight, I realized that some rules HR have about advertising a job might not be that bad after all. My internship at Örnsköldsviks hospital was just great. I had to work a lot, and I won't get into that bit in this episode, but I had fun and worked with great colleagues. During this time, the time at the anesthetic department was short and mostly boring. But during my two weeks, I had a great specialist who really was engaged. And we had some very special patient cases which made me interested in this field. By chance, again, you could apply for a residency in anesthesiology in my hometown at the end of my internship. So I did, and I got it. As a resident, ST-läkare, you needed to do most of the educational part for younger doctors. I just dreaded this. I felt uneducated because they always had so many questions I needed to answer and the education needed to be good enough so they learned something. So my way of dealing with this was to just educate enough. I made sure I knew everything I talked about very, very well 
but I had no time to get deeper into irrelevant details. And somehow this was a very successful strategy. The junior doctors thought I knew much more than I did and I would talk with them in a way they fully understood. A lot of practical problems you could solve with discussing theoretics and not the other way around. I was even nominated, no I did not win, uh, I was even nominated the best clinical teacher one year. So very early I got a hang of how I thought I could do when teaching people. Keep it simple, talk in ways they always understand and add the knowledge they need. There is no show off how much you know yourself, but they should leave with more knowledge. I had a teacher in med school who said that if you would remember one sentence, yeah, one sentence after each lecture in med school, then you would have an immense bank of knowledge at the end of med school. At that time, everyone was laughing, but I can really understand him now. So, looking back 25 years, my way of educating really has not changed during these years. So that was no strategic plan of mine, but I found out what worked the best. After half my residency, I was not really satisfied with my salary and thought that if I could show my boss that I was willing to move, maybe there would be some room for a raise. I had asked one of my former intern internship colleagues who worked in Stockholm if he had any experience in the hospitals. He recommended me to talk to the people at Karolinska Hospital, which I did during a short vacation I had. Fat chance I would get any job there. During the interview, the head of department realized I was not completely new, but had actually already done half of my residency. I got all these questions about research, educations, etc. And as always, I just tell the truth. I am so bad in strategies when it comes to what to say and how to say it to plan uh, the response. So I kind of just said I want to work, which I did. At that time, that seemed to be just what they needed. So I got the job. What? I got the job. We had no plans whatsoever to move and it wasn't really the best time to do it. But we said that if we don't take this chance, maybe it will not come back. So some 20 years ago, my family and I moved to Stockholm. We just got our first child at that time and which section should I try to work at the hospital so I didn't have to put someone to sleep at 7.30 for the surgeon to begin, making kindergarten time start at hmm, 6 a.m. Okay, why not start out with that probably much boring, dreadful place called the pain clinic. <sighs> but from day one, I was hooked. So interesting. I worked mostly with patients having cancer, but also with other patient groups. Although having my base in regular anesthesia, I never really left the pure pain fields and continued later on to become a pain specialist. I also did a dissertation, but it was actually not in pain, but in intensive care about the so-called critical illness myopathy and polyneuropathy. During this time, I also worked mostly summers in Great Britain at the NHS, 
which also taught me a lot. This could also be an episode of its own, but I won't get into that uh, today. After 10 years at Karolinska and the pain clinic, I had had one dreadful on-call and when leaving for the day shift to take over there was no such thing as emotional feedback. My research was going down the drain. Well, it turned out to be quite good at the end, but at that time when I was sitting there the day after on-call, tired, frustrated and drained, I got a call from my current hospital and the pain clinic. I was asked if I didn't want to try a new job. If the call would have come one week later, I might have stayed at my first hospital. But sometimes fate, well, you get it. So I changed workplace and somewhat also the type of patients I met. From 95% cancer and 5% not, it was the other way around. And there was a pure pain rehab section, which I hadn't worked with before either. As an anesthetist, I was mostly interested in the hospital bit. After some years, I was offered to become head of department, which I accepted. And since 2014, I have really appreciated the things a complete pain clinic can accomplish. We are both working directly at the hospital with inward patients. We do treatments with people with localized pain and have pain rehab for persistent pain which often is generalized, that is, most of the body. And since persistent pain does so much more with you, it is harder to sleep, you are tired daytime, you cannot work but might still not get reimbursed by society, all these things cannot be treated with tablets. And the longer the pain, the more important other things than tablets become. Therefore, a pain clinic covering all of these different angles of life really is gold for the patient. So today, what am I thinking about the pain field out there after working 25 years in healthcare dealing with these questions? Well, first of all, the education in medical school about persistent pain is lousy. Of course, there are some good parts and a lot of people really trying to make it better, but overall it is lousy. Why is this? Well, pain is always looked upon as a symptom of something else that is wrong. Many times this is of course the case. You have tonsillitis and your throat hurts like crazy. You get medical treatment or you wait and you get better and the pain ceases. Some rheumatic disorders go with pain, some neurological disorders do as well. Some back problems go with pain. So when you learn about pain, so to speak, in med school, it is a part of another disease. If you have this surgical problem, you solve it by surgery, before you do surgery and afterwards you treat the pain. Same goes with orthopedics. If you have pain due to a rheumatic disease, you might get a modern biological medication and the activity of the disease gets much lower. But you still have pain. Now, why on earth is it so? There are also back problems that do not go with pain. 
and there are age changes of the spine that are completely normal and don't mean your pain is there because of them. But in med school you really want to find a cause because you can treat it properly. So after six years or so with exams where you get points for the right answer and nothing for the wrong ones, you get a picture that the world is black and white and if you find the disease you can do your best to cure it. But when it comes to persistent pain, this is not right. You can be in pain although nothing can be found. The original trauma can actually be totally healed, but some people still have pain. And the risk is that if you have a view that you need to find the cause of the pain and there is nothing to be found, then something must be of course wrong with the patient. Maybe they are just making their pain up. It's not for real. When the doctor or other healthcare providers start thinking like this, it gets dangerous. Okay, so med school might not have the proper education about persistent pain then. And the same goes with internship, residency and specialist education. But I must say that when I have lectures for young doctors who are bursting to get out and do their work, I am so happy when I see their eagerness to learn more about pain, to help patients. So there is definitely a great hope out there. Don't despair. The other thing I think about the pain field is that it is way too complicated for people. The professionals do not seem to be able to explain what persistent pain is. Otherwise more people would know about it. When my thoughts are that the medical community for pain should do everything in its power to make people on the street understand pain and what can be done about it, it talks about how to name the condition. Nauseplastic pain is something that is really hot nowadays. Yes, it might be good for the medical community to understand that that term might be better than the ones we use today, but I am very sorry, it does not help the patient. Actually, one of my previous guests in this pod said that the word might even scare people. I think as a, an ordinary person without medical knowledge, I mean, and I think nociplastic is, you, you don't know what it is. You don't know how to act towards it. What is it? Is it something dangerous? When we use Latin words or medical words, it's easy for people without that medical knowledge to, to think that this is something dangerous because they don't know what it is. So I think persistent, or I even say long-term pain sometimes. What is nociplastic? What does it mean? When neoplastic means cancer, one could start thinking. Can anything be done then about all this? Well, of course. I know that most branches of healthcare say that there are too few doctors and we need more money to make it better. I am not too sure about that. Well, the number of doctors I really don't know about. In Sweden, there are around 100 active pain specialists, which makes one doctor on 100,000 people in Sweden. And maybe one doctor in 20,000 people with persistent pain. That does not sound like an overwhelming amount. 
But since knowledge is on a quite low level, I am sure we can do a lot with little effort. Personally, I wrote a book uh, together with a co-author, Karin Julström, where, where I explain pain so simple everyone should understand it. When people understand, they can ask their doctor the right questions and the doctor can focus on what's most relevant and maybe also focus on which areas need more knowledge and education. Do you have any advice on how the whole society could be better in understanding and treating pain? Any personal positive stories? Make sure to mail me at karsten at karstenalbeck.com. Although this episode was a little bit different, I hope you enjoyed it. Next week will be a regular one with a very interesting guest. Tell your friends about this pod or make them read my book, Outsmart the Pain, Överlista smärtan. Take care and I'll talk to you soon again. <laughs>